Good morning, everyone. This month, we're learning how to be focused in the present moment. Sometimes that means the focus on a, a school tragedy. Sometimes that might be the focus of a vacation. Sometimes it might be the focus of great joy or great sadness. But the Eastern wisdom would tell us that the more we can be grounded in what's going on right now, the more that we can seek out the, the pleasures, the joy, the existence of whatever is right before us, that ultimately the happier we will be. We're using this marvelous book called Take Your Time of, uh, of its Warrens. And, uh, and really, of course, it's, it's Eastern tradition. It, it is Buddhist in nature. And yet I think what I love about this book is that it gives us uh, some more Western thought around it. It gives us that, that Western hook to hang some of our own sensibilities on so that we learn some of these concepts in a way that's more easygoing for us. And, and for that, I, I really recommend the book. Uh, for today, for example, we're going to learn about the, the um, Eastern Buddhist um, idea of detachment and why detachment can actually bring us great freedom in life and great joy. And, uh, and one of the places to start, actually, is a place that took me a little bit by surprise uh, because he really recommends examining our very likes and our dislikes as an initial point of attachment. So I guess to do that, the one place to start is how do we even form a like or a dislike? Well, first of all, it has a couple components here, but first of all, we just have to experience something. Sometimes vicariously, right? Sometimes someone will tell us about something or someone, and then other times we experience it ourselves directly. Uh, okay, an example. I was maybe four or five years old over at my grandparents' house for breakfast. My grandfather loves his coffee dark and black and strong. The four-year-old Larry says, what you got there? <laughs> Grandpa says, take a taste. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> to anyone that has ever watched a small child drink strong black coffee, you'll know there's a, an instant dislike to that. Okay, so that would be how we form an, an initial dislike to something. Uh, similarly, of course, we form our likes. I'm sure the very first time I tasted ice cream or something particularly sweet, there was that probably light up of the, the taste buds and that sense of, all right, something's going on here. Now, in themselves, these likes and dislikes are, are of course, average and normal and useful and, and, and fun. Where we get into trouble, though, is when we start having strong attachments to some of these very likes and dislikes. And as Swarian said, that when we have a big attachment, literally the bigger the attachment and the development of something that we like, in the end, the less we'll like that thing. And he says the reverse is also true. The greater we develop a dislike, the more we're going to feel that dislike and actually be immune to other things that we might like. So either way, these strong attachments bring us less of what we want, which is the joy and the freedom and the happiness of life. Well, I thought I would do a demonstration today because sometimes this Eastern thought has a way of, you know, it kind of sounds right and then it sort of goes right over my head. And so what I did was I simply made uh, some of my strongest likes and dislikes. And if you're willing, I thought we'd process them through today. You know, pro probably this is therapy for me. So I, 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 hope, I, I hope you don't mind too much. So I have the dislikes 
um, in red and the likes with little hearts on them. Helen, would you help me get started? Pick either, either one and we'll, we'll take a look at this. All right, so what, what have I got there? Okay, all right, so yeah, when I was about 20 years old, I discovered Agatha Christie. Now, for those of you, you know, who are probably under 40, you might be saying, who the heck is Agatha Christie? Um, but she was one of the most prolific mystery writers, British mystery writers, in, in the last century. Wrote over 100 books, and oh my gosh, were those attractive to me. I started reading the first one, and you know, before long, I'd had like 50 of them under my belt, and I'd also read a book on criticism of her work. I had, had seen, of course, all of her movies, you know, Murder on the Orient Express, and you know, all those great movies that they filmed. I mean, I was an Agatha Christie nut. The trouble was, about age 25, I read the last of her books. I was expecting literature to be like that, and I'd just run out of it. I had heightened my appreciation for the genre of, of mystery stories to where I only liked Agatha Christie. A friend of mine said, oh, well, you know, there's this New Zealand woman that, that writes similar stories. You know, you should try that. I read one, and immediately I started picking it apart. Oh, well, you know, this one I figured out in the first five pages, you know, that, that would have never happened with Agatha Christie, and, and she, of course, does such a better job of, uh, of developing the characters, and what I had done through my intense like, I kind of ruined myself. Do you know what I mean? It was years that I could just pick up a mystery book and enjoy myself. It was through my development, my increasing attachment to something that I actually liked, that it compromised my enjoyment of just a good read of a mystery novel. It wasn't for years later that I was able to pick up a mystery novel again and enjoy it just on its own merits and not be comparing it to this grandmaster. This kind of thing we do all the time. In fact, I'll, I'll use an example. I was just on vacation in, in the Florida Keys and uh, in Orlando with nephews and niece. And so the first day out, we're staying in a sweet condo in, in Orlando. And we thought to save a little money, we would uh, do our own cooking. So we go and make the mammoth run, you know, in the rental car to the to the market to dry, buy enough food for a week. And one of the things we purchased was a ham because they thought, well, this would be good for sandwiches for the kids when we're at Disney World. And so the first night, out. We cooked the ham, and, and uh, you know, people are eating, and the 14-year-old boy says, you know, this sure isn't as good as those honey-baked hams. <laughs> now, where does that come from, do you think? Because the ham was lovely, and everybody, I think, but him, well, of course, me, I'm a vegetarian, so I didn't have any of it, but, uh, but everybody but him was eating that ham like it was the, the sweetest, nicest thing ever. He's picking at it because in his head, it doesn't measure up, you know, to the probably $75 honey-baked ham that he had one time. Why do we do things like this to ourselves? Why do we associate with something that we like to the exclusion of other things? I mean, it really ruined the moment for that young man because he could have had a lovely dinner. It was a lovely dinner. Everyone else had a perfect, lovely, tasty wonderful dinner he poked at his ham and uh, and talked about it you know I think though what's interesting is uh, it, it works just as well the other way too let's see uh, we drew a, 
a positive like one that we kind of ruined. Let's see, uh, would you mind, uh, let's see if we can get a negative one. Yeah, okay, so what have we got here? Dislike carrot cake. Okay, oh well, this is what, hopefully I'll get through this one okay. I always write down the most embarrassing stories for myself, you know, so that we all get to share them. So carrot cake. Um, when I was growing up, it was something that was always given to me on my birthday. So for my birthday, I would have carrot cake. And my mom did a, a lovely recipe of carrot cake, really quite good, moist, um, with, uh, you know, you could see the carrot in it, and, and it had uh, cream cheese frosting. And quite good, quite good, moist, lovely. Well, somewhere along the line, my grandmother decided that this was something that Larry really enjoyed, and, you know, what can a grandmother do for a grandson? Do you know what I mean? But, of course, she had her own idea of how to make carrot cake. She made it in loaf pans, and it was dry, and you could not detect any, I mean, it was just a, everything was like, I don't know how she could get the carrots so they disappeared. <laughs> and it was dry and horrible. And as a teenager, I mean, maybe you're familiar that sometimes teenagers aren't as kind as they could be. And I still remember this day, you know, after about five years in a row getting this dried, horrible carrot cake, I decided that I just hated it. And I even told my grandmother that I really didn't appreciate it. And I got to tell you, I found all sorts of feedback. I, I mean, I would, like, I, I, I would like watch someone else eat a slice of it. It's really dry, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? It wasn't just that I had the reaction to it, but I was, bu I was building up my case. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like I was building up the truth that my grandmother was evil for me. You know, this is the woman that I love. And so what is sad here, of course, is through my building up this dislike, I was dishonoring someone that was beautiful and magical in my life. So whether it's a strong like or whether it's a strong dislike, either way, the strength of it will tend to increase what you don't want to experience. Another example, uh, country western music. Oh my gosh, I was such a music snob when I, when I was growing up and in my 20s. And, and, and I don't know if it's because there were members of my family that I kind of viewed in a certain way that liked country music. And I kind of viewed them with a certain light that maybe was less positive or whatever. But what I knew, or if it was just the lyrics and some of the strangeness and oddness of country music, what I knew was I hated it. And I would seek, I would seek out people who would agree with me, right? It's like, oh, isn't it terrible? And all the songs are just about, you know, marriages that have ended badly and how much alcoholism should be <laughs> held up in high esteem. And, you know, I'm, I'm drunk and my girlfriend left me and the dog died too kind of songs, right? And, uh, and so I went through this phase, really, oh, well, I say phase, um, really a lifetime of actively making fun of country music, and in some cases, the, the people that enjoyed country music. Well, okay, so anyway, you know, 35 years or so of that, I get in a relationship with someone who is a professional dancer. And, um, of course, you know, I would like to help him out in his dance classes. Guess what the most popular dance <laughs> class is right now in America? It's country western two-step. So how do you deal with something like that, right? 
I tell you, my relationship is way more important than music. About 35 lessons later, <laughs> I'm starting to enjoy country western music. And what I discovered was, it was only in my head that most of the songs were about horses that have died and <laughs> marriages that end badly. And, and it was only in my head that only certain kinds of people enjoy country western music. And it was only in my head, only because I had built up these beliefs and then tried to find other people that would emphasize them and mirror them back to me. And now I'm enjoying those classes. And sure, there's the odd music now and then when I go, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> where the horse did die or the marriage does end badly. Um, but why, why would I limit myself in such ways through the very likes and dislikes to narrow the focus of what I like in music or narrow the focus of what I like in food or narrow the focus in life itself just because of my likes and my strong dislikes. You know, an, another story that I would share with you, a dear friend of mine, Pat, we were such good friends and she loved eating out or so I thought. And uh, so we went to a kind of a health food restaurant one day. And uh, so, uh, you know, I'm looking at the menu and things look kind of nice and I pick out what I'm gonna have. And the, this, the wait person comes over and says, and what would you like looking at Pat? And she said, well, what's the special today? And um, the fellow says, well, it's a, it's a curry over rice, you know, with carrots and potatoes and, uh, and chicken. And, uh, and Pat immediately begins asking questions. Well. Could you serve that without the carrots? Do the peas have to be in that? And so she's kind of negotiating with the, the wait staff on how this can be altered to be made into something different. And she finished it up with saying, and instead of rice, I'll have that over pasta. <laughs> and I'm going, wait a minute. <laughs> and what I discovered, as much as I love Pat, she was an amazingly finicky eater. And she wanted things in this very, very narrow band of, of what she would eat and what she wouldn't eat. And you know what? She was never happy in the restaurant either because when the food really would come, what would be the chances that they could get it right? Do you know what I mean? It's like they managed to find some pasta, God help them, but then it wasn't al dente. Do you know what I mean? So the more we refine what we want in life, the more that we have hard attachments to the way things that either they should be or they shouldn't be, our very lives get narrower and narrower and narrower. If I stuck to my guns and hating country western music, there would be a whole fun part of my life I'd be missing out on. If you stick to your guns around likes and dislikes, you're apt to alienate yourself from the people that you love and from your own way of being, your own sense of just being able to enjoy the moment. Why not enjoy the lovely ham meal? The ham doesn't have to be from honey baked. Why not enjoy what's right before us in its quiet and simple and joyous way? The more critical we are, the more discerning we are in our likes and our dislikes, either one simply brings disharmony. When we're too sure about what we like, it just dramatizes then when things don't go that way. And when we're, we're too sure about what we don't like, uh, we spend all of our time being unhappy with life. Okay.
So what's the solution here? I presented a fairly compelling problem, I think. Um, and the solution gets right back to how we began to form the like and the dislike in the beginning. It's that initial impression. The initial impressions generally are coming from our senses, right? It's that first take taste of the lemon that says sour to us. It's that first bite of the Brussels sprout that the nine-year-old goes, Bleh. do you know what I mean? Okay, but we're not nine anymore. The good news is, is as adults, when we have that first impression, we can counter it or we can evaluate it with our own mentalities. Uh, another example, I remember for many years I was a supervisor at the telephone company, and I remember this one gentleman came in, and I took an instant dislike to him. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, how am I going to work with this man? He actually kind of smells bad. And, uh, and I, you know, and I immediately after this, after spending like two minutes with him, right, I started my list of dislikes. But you know what? I was going to spend 20 years of my life sitting within three deaths of that gentleman. That was the fact of it. I didn't know it then, but that was the fact of it. Now, I like to think I have changed so that when I get that initial reaction, whether it's a Brussels sprout or, or a new fellow coming in the door, whether it's a new way of being or a new person, I like to think that now, instead of that initial sweet or sour, you know, classifying like or dislike, I pause. And I allow myself really to think about what I want to experience as opposed to what that immediate sensation is. What I would want to experience in a, no co in a new coworker is maybe friendship, is maybe getting along, is maybe productivity, or, or sorting out the odds and ends of sitting next to someone that you're going to be sitting next to for some time. When I first taste something new, now I think about some of its nutritional qualifications and, and what it might go with that would be good. And instead of just going Brussels sprouts, yuck, I'm thinking Brussels sprouts, do you know there's more iron and vitamin C in Brussels sprouts than just about anything you can eat? And I begin thinking, you know, sautéed in butter, I bet. <laughs> We have options. As an adult, we don't have to just classify things into sweet and sour. We don't just have to say this is unpleasant and start building the case for making it gosh darn awful. <laughs> and the converse is we don't have to say, oh, this is good, so I should have a pound of it. <laughs> we get, as adults, to evaluate what's going on in our senses and to really be based in the present moment. So we can enjoy what's before us, and we can be discriminating in a useful way. Is this something that in the long run is good for me to like or dislike? You know, it would be much more useful for me to like the person sitting next to me for 20 years. It would be much more useful for me to enjoy country music if I'm going to be teaching dance steps to it for 10 or 15 years, right? And in the same way that we built up a like or a dislike, the same tool, we can reverse them. So instead of that feeling that gut reaction of Brussels sprouts, yuck, we can go, Brussels sprouts, now that's interesting. That's not a flavor that I've actually tasted before. I wonder what it would be good for. 
I wonder what, I, you know, maybe I should check it out and see if it has special nutritional values. <laughs> they sell a lot of them in the supermarket. There must be a reason for that. Do you know what I mean? You can begin collecting the evidence that it might be good for you. You can begin collecting the evidence. What I discovered actually about Brussels sprouts is um, someone um, sautés them in, in cooking sherry and, and kind of braises them a little on one side. They actually come out sweet. Brussels sprouts. <laughs> All right. My point today is a simple one. My point is that we're in the driver's seat where even our sensations are, the things that come to our, our, our hands and, and our hearing and our eyes and our, and our taste, certainly the senses are there initially, but we do not have to go with them. It doesn't have to be like we're on the horse and wherever it takes us, that's where we're going. We are in control of what we like and we dislike. And we have the power of choice in our lives to make good decisions for our futures. So I'm going to close today um, with a quote from this sweet book on this idea of likes and dislikes. And then we'll close with a prayer. So Ed Swaran says, often rigid likes and dislikes are merely a matter of attention getting stuck. We get caught in a groove of what we have been conditioned to like and dislike, and we can't imagine getting free. And when we find that others have their attention stuck in their groove, we either emphasize this or friction results. That's, that's the where we compare notes, and either, either you're in it with me or you're the enemy. <laughs> Usually without thinking, we react negatively. We can move away from friends and loved ones based simply on likes and dislikes. But, but we can learn to play with our likes and dislikes instead. Once we taste the freedom of choice, everything can be quite enjoyable. Let us pray. There is one power and one presence in this universe. It is this thing called life. And what I know about life is it's infinite. There's an infinite number of things that we could choose, if we will, to like or dislike, to avoid or embrace. This is the infinity that is God. And I know that means me. I know that right in my life there is that infinity in the present moment of the things and the people and the situations and the, the presence and my, my own mental makeup, that all of it is here in this present moment. And for me and for the people in this room, I simply grant on this day that there is a greater degree of choice and freedom involved, that we are not at the mercy of our likes and our dislikes, that we consciously and powerfully can choose to like the things that are useful for us, that we can choose to ignore the things that are distasteful to us as having no power to not allow these attachments to overly form and control our lives, that each one of us can truly experience the freedom of living at peace and in joy no matter what's going on, to live life fully here and now. This is the truth that I know for myself. This is the truth that I know for each person in this room, that the willingness and the capability of living in joy from moment to moment is here. I'm grateful for this. I let it be, and so it is. Thank you for being here today. Thank you.